Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in the negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the podcast, we are joined by Suzanne Klepsch, who sold her company, Meat Fox, to Send in Blue in 2021. But before we get there, I would encourage you to head over to our show notes page, which is at Built to Sell Radio, where there I have linked to Send in Blue's official M&A announcement doc for their acquisition of Meat Fox. There's a lot of great information in there, which I think you'll enjoy. So again, head over to our show notes page, which can be found at built to sell. Dot com. Also, a quick reminder, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, you can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and review. Reviews truly help our show grow and get in front of more business owners like you. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Suzanne, who started the company Meat Fox. Now, you can imagine Meat Fox is kind of like Calendly meet Zoom with payment processing options for their customers. So kind of a unique scheduling and video calling solution. Now, as you're going to hear, Suzanne grew this company to 25,000 customers before selling to Send in Blue. Just an absolutely amazing accomplishment. But as you're listening to today's episode, I want you to listen for how to know if you're building a product or a company, how to incite a bidding war for your business, how to approach potential acquirers without seeming desperate, how to structure a winning earnout, how to use market research to grow your business, and how to mitigate your risk when accepting stock. Here to share with you the full story of how she sold Meat Fox to Send in Blue in 2021 is Suzanne Klepsch. Enjoy. Suzanne Klepsch, welcome to Build Cell Radio. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really honored and excited to be here. Yeah, well, it's good to have you. Tell me about Meet Fox. How did this company come about? Sure. So um, I co-founded Meet Fox a few years ago, um, back in 2016, back in Vienna, Austria, where I'm originally from. And uh, Meet Fox is a scheduling and video calling solution uh, that helps service professionals manage and monetize the, the time and uh, we went through a real uh, startup roller coaster like the typical roller coaster with a lot of ups and downs and um, pivoted twice or changed our name twice and so lots of different uh, things happened throughout the years um, and then uh, to be honest thanks to the pandemic we suddenly saw like a real growth um, in our user base because everybody was looking for a scheduling solution, everybody was looking for a video calling solution. So that um, really helped us um, take off. And um, in February of last year, uh, we got acquired by Sendinblue. So okay, I want yeah. to pause you there. That's <laughs> the, the, the the very very short story. Um, but I want to dig in a little bit more. So it's a fast 2016 to 2021. I mean, that's a very very fast five year trajectory. So um, a, I'm, I'm dying to find out more of that. But first, I want to understand the company. So um, scheduling software, and you said something really nice. It was, it was to help manage and also monetize their... Give me that line again. You said schedule and monetize? Yeah, schedule and monetize um, service professionals' time. So basically, 
yeah, it was it's it's a scheduling solution similar to um, Calendly, but what made us different, especially in the beginning, of course, now a lot of our competitors have also adapted those features, but we had our own uh, or we have our own video calling solution fully integrated. And then we are also allowing people to charge for their for their video calls. So what they could love- they were able to do is like put in a payment uh, process into the booking process that allowed yeah. them to charge for for the time. And so I love that <laughs> because that's an age old challenge that a lot of people who sell their time, so consultants and and other people, is, is they're kind of squeamish about the the billing of their time. Like, is this on, you know, or is this a paid call? Is, a, you know, like, is this business development? Uh, you know, what if the person doesn't show up? Like, I've given them an hour of my time. That's my inventory on the shelf. I've got 40 hours. If they don't, they wait. And your, your tool, as I understood it, allowed someone to A, schedule an appointment with a service provider. But B, if the service provider insisted that they get payment upfront, the, the person scheduling the appointment would have to plug in their credit card right there exactly. so that the service provider was guaranteed that money effectively for giving them that hour of their time. Exactly. And by doing so, we that. also help them avoid that uncomfortable conversation to have where you you know you have to send an email with an invoice or you have to ask up front for a payment. Oh, yeah. So that was uh, making it a little easier. But you would be surprised how many service professionals uh, when we started off were really... Um, uncertain about using that and also really? about, yeah and so I, mean, I have to admit that we started in austria where things are always a little bit behind and <laughs> things take longer to to adapt and so um video calling was a no-go people did not want to use video calls for the uh, for the services uh that was again pre before the pandemic um but then also asking your clients for the credit card information or asking them to pay up front was also something that um we thought it was a smart idea, but the market did not adapt that so well. And that is also the reason why we then moved to, to the US and um, really started it more or less here because we realized that- And what was that the it, reaction to the integrated payment in the US market? It was way better because uh, people, uh, Americans are way more used to using their credit card on a day-to-day basis. Um, and so there's not this, anxiety about putting your credit card details uh, on some kind of website as there is in in europe and so i think that helped us a lot and then also they did there was just video calls were just so much more adapted at that time even before the pandemic that it wasn't that uncommon to sometimes have video calls instead of face-to-face meetings and so that was kind of our our angle to enter the market um okay yeah. So I have to admit, I'm a calendarly user. Don't hate yeah. me. But <laughs> I'm when, I'm comparing, when yeah. I'm comparing your solution to calendarly on the scheduling functions, um, so people on my network can pick 30 mm-hmm. minutes on my calendar, 60 minutes, like they're at parity, right? Yeah. But in 2016, 17, you also included the video and the payments, which were differentiators. Yes. And to be honest, now in hindsight, we should have not differentiated ourselves so much because I think that the fact that we had video calling and payment and we tried to promote that as a feature was in hindsight um, pretty uh, detrimental to our success because I think if we were just focusing on scheduling, it would have made it a pretty easy sell at that time. People were not yet 
um, using Calendly as much. There was still a lot of you know, space to, to acquire market share. And we were trying to sell them already on three different things that they were maybe not yet doing. So maybe they were not yet you know, having video calls. Maybe they were not yet charging it during the booking. And maybe they were not yet having a calendaring solution. And we tried to sell them on all of that. And by doing so, we, um, we made our messaging very uh, unclear. And um, I think we should have just gone with scheduling only and then added really? some additional features later on. Uh, but we tried really hard to be different. We, we understood that Calendly was a rising star on the horizon at that time. And we just wanted to um, position ourselves differently. And uh, we also thought that you, you have to be, um, you have to like do something different and, and be innovative and not just like <laughs> offer. Yeah, you can't just be a parody again. or yeah. whatever. Exactly. So take, so you take me through the rest of the story. So 2016, you started in Vienna as people are like, I don't do video and I'm not certainly doing credit cards. So you go to the US. Where, where did you get the money to start this thing? Because it doesn't sound cheap. You had to have developers and there's a bunch of stuff involved. Yeah. What, so we got advice. very lucky that we were able to develop our product um, with a great team that was willing to put in a lot of their time and um, not be as expensive as it would have been if we had started from the beginning in the US. Our entire development team was back in Europe. Um, and we also had, uh, we were lucky because we got into Techstars which gave us some initial funding and through um, and some other accelerator programs. Uh, also, because we originated as an uh, Austrian company, we got a lot of public grants. Uh, that's one of the, or that's the beauty of, of starting a company in Europe is that there are many public grants available uh, that are really helping you at the beginning. At the same time, there's not so much uh, institutional funding or you know, VC money available in Austria and so you got tech stars, accelerators, public grants, all in. Do you have any sense of like what you would have raised in the way of capital through those three sources? Um, I think through those, we probably raised overall 700K. Wow. And how much equity yeah. did you have to give up for that amount of um, cash? Let me think. I think it was 15% of 15%. All. One yeah. five. Yeah. For seven hundred grand, so it's a pretty valuable idea. Yeah, it's a good thing is that it was um, a lot of the public grants in Austria are sometimes even equity equity free. You just have to show that you're you know, doing something different, that you're uh, investing in research and development, and um, those sorts of things. So yeah, it it pays it, off, but it's it's also you a lot of work you to, to get a grant. <laughs> you mentioned there was. A we involved, so it's not just you. Who else co-founded this company with you? So it was my um, co-founder Joseph Pucker, who is uh, our CTO, and then Tali Mandelzweig, who um, is our COO, CRO, and she. And how did you guys figure out the equity? Did you just do a third, a third, a third, or did you like? How did you split things up between the two of you? Um, yeah. So the thing is that I uh, originally started with a different co-founder. Things didn't work out. Um, then we. And then I decided to continue by myself, but also realized that it's so important to have good people in your team, and it's so valuable to um, to be able to like, split up the the workload. And so I then um, 
found two co-founders and to be honest Talia I, I found her she wrote me on LinkedIn <laughs> and we just connected and went for, for a coffee and um, it, yeah everything um, went great from there and uh, Joseph as well he was just applying for, for a position and I realized immediately that he's super talented and that he has the potential to to really grow into a, a different role and so he immediately took on the CTO role and I'm I was um, super lucky to get those people on board, um, and because I've already like put in some time and money investment in the beginning, uh, we decided to split it up in like a little bit of a different ratio. So it wasn't one uh, third each, but it was still like a a discussion that we had, and based on the time that we all put in, and based on the value that we put in. Um, but yeah. So if I understand, were, were they were Italian and and Joseph? drawing a salary was everybody just doing the work for free until you could kind of get things going um at that time we were able to pay salaries but to be honest those salaries were very very small uh, Below market. Yeah. yeah yeah and so um there was definitely a, a, an equity component needed yeah um, just to to also be fair and i think that they more than deserved it with all the work that they put in into the company I've heard from founders that that can be a really delicate conversation because as a founder, you've put your blood, sweat, tears into this company. You've got other people coming in. You're trying to get them for less than market. So there's this whole difficult conversation. What was that like for you? Um, yeah, it was definitely not easy. Um, and I think that what we did, of course, we had some vesting um, clause in our contracts to make sure that we're not just giving away equity right from the beginning, that there is some expectation uh, attached to the equity that is uh, being distributed. And so uh, I tried at least to be as explicit as possible on the expectations, on the time effort that, that uh, we're all putting in. And I think it's in the end all about kind of finding a balance and um, making sure that everybody feels like they're fairly treated while at the same time um, creating like some motivation as well to maybe gain more if, if you achieve a certain level. So what we also did, we had some, um, we had some goals that everybody was um, supposed to achieve. And if they achieved that, then they would get some additional uh, equity. So that's how we tried to, to split it up and motivate everyone. Yeah. And were the goals tied to the overall performance of the company or their individual performance? Um, it was. Of course, everything is kind of tied always together. Um, so a company, um, for example, Tally's goals were more um, focused on getting more clients in and more a bigger, like more revenues in. Um, but at the same time, of course, the revenues can't go without a good product. So of course, it's also very much dependent on um, the product that Joseph was delivering again. So even though they're intertwined, um, it was more of an individual, a, a, a goal that everybody individual could at least impact that makes yeah. that makes sense got it and just out of curiosity i know a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this would be curious about the vesting schedule so was was it vesting based on time like a certain number of months or years have to go by or was it vesting based on hitting specific milestones as a company uh it was a combination um, so oh, okay. I think that only doing it on time is a little bit difficult because at least I'm a person that's like very attached uh, 
to my team members and I felt like it was difficult to, you know, if you know that it's only based on time, but maybe the performance isn't there and it's sometimes difficult to keep people. And um, that's why having a combination of a time component as well as a bone, uh, objective that needs to be reached um, or certain milestones that needs to be reached uh, was helpful for me at least. Okay. Diana asked you about the sales because you mentioned it was tough in Austria. You moved to the US, you get some some, uh, capital behind you through Techstars and others. What would you? What was the the trajectory like from there? Like, did you start selling American customers? Like, how big did you get in two thousand seventeen, two thousand eighteen? Like, what, what did that look like? So we um, yeah we started off in, in North America and we didn't really have any brand, any name, and no marketing budget to to build. So it was very difficult for us to to really grow our revenue at that time. Um, our product was mediocre at that time as well. So it. it wasn't an easy sell. Um, the what we did back in the days is we had an AppSumo deal. I don't know if you're familiar with AppSumo, but we had this this is deal side where you can sell a deal to to early adopters, and that really helped us shape our roadmap and get early feedback. Uh, Explain so we, AppSumo for folks who don't know AppSumo, so, including me. What, yeah. what is it? So AppSumo is this. Um, page that has a lot of different products that are usually usually pretty new products and so it's kind of like a kickstarter in a way but it's more for like SaaS products that are already on the market are, are ready to be used um and usually you give up your product for i guess 70 80 percent discount so it's a pretty significant discount um that is usually tied to either a lifetime deal or a yearly deal so in the end, it's really not a good, you know, it, it doesn't really have a very positive impact on your revenue. But what it does, it, it gives you some traction and it gives you some early learnings and it gives you a lot of early adopters. And um, the AppSumo user base is very happy to give feedback. They're very, they usually are very tech savvy. They know all the, the other products that are on the market. So it, that, that really helped us kind of kickstart in the U.S. Um, so you get instant instant market research, lots of feedback for folks who are happy testimonials. I'm imagining for exactly. folks who think it's good, yeah. And that gives you Captera reviews and exactly it triggers. Got it. Yeah. So that got us got to a certain level, but then it was still very difficult. So right before the pandemic, we were, to be honest, close to to just calling it a day and shutting down the business because it was just not. It was going into some direction, but it was we weren't growing fast enough. Uh, we were running out of money. We knew that like raising another round would be difficult with our uh, trajectory that we had at that time. And then, as I said before, the pandemic hit, and um, that really changed um, okay. a lot before of us. Pan- before we go to the pandemic, though, I want to just get a sense. So just give me as much as you're willing to share, sort of top-line revenue, churn. Like w- w- When you're thinking of shutting it down, like where are you on the kind of key metrics, like revenue, churn, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I would, I, to be honest, it's been a while, so I haven't checked the, the numbers lately. Uh, but I think we had a few thousand um, dollars a month in, in recurring revenue, and we we had definitely more costs with our team and with everything. So it wasn't, it was definitely not profitable, far from profitable. And um, so that's why we, we realized that we have to do something. Yeah. 
Okay, so let, let me see if I can summarize where we're at so far. So doesn't work in Austria. You bring it to the US. The AppSumo is a double-edged sword in the sense, number one, it brings in lots of customers who are, give you lots of feedbacks. So it's great for research, but they're heavily discounted and lifetime deals. So they're kind of skewing your your numbers. You've, you're only at a few thousand dollars in 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 revenue per month, which isn't even enough to pay your co-founders properly. So you're like, maybe we yeah. just shut this thing down. Yeah. Then the exactly. pandemic hits. What happens then the next? Pandemic um, and suddenly we just re- received a lot of organic traffic. I mean, of course, also through the AppSumo user base, but then also through other places. I suddenly received a lot of um, invites to, to podcasts, to different kind of... Um, organic um, channels that uh, I was allowed, uh, I was able to leverage because we were suddenly able to position ourselves as a kind of a pandemic winner in the startup ecosystem at that time because suddenly people were looking for a video calling solution. We were lucky enough to have a video calling solution embedded. We were lucky enough to have a scheduling solution embedded. And at that time, people also needed to schedule COVID, appointment, uh, COVID testing appointments. Um, there were like, I mean, even in Europe, you had to like make an appointment to go to uh, any kind of shops at some point. You needed to make an appointment for everything. And so that really helped us um, get the ball moving. And it was, it was just uh, an interesting experience to wake up suddenly in the morning and suddenly have like every day more and more users. Um, but to be honest, what does it we feel were, like? I mean, it felt great. Like, it felt, um, like we finally had our product market fit. It really. What was helping you rank? organically cuz i mean i i'm imagining if i typed in scheduling software my my assumption would be the first 10 links would be calendarly yeah. articles or something like how did you all of a sudden start ranking organically that i'm, I'm like why wouldn't calendarly like benefit from 100% of the increased demand associated with the pandemic yeah, so we, I mean, we did a lot of, we started writing a lot of blogs. We started to, to, to collaborate with some, some other companies that were writing about us. Um, but yeah, it was definitely difficult because Calendly at that time was already a very strong, uh, strong play in the market. And they already had a big market share. And um, it's, so organically, we weren't growing that much on, on SEO search, but we were, trying different ways to get into like a different user base. We, for example, uh, partnered up with a lot of associations, like coaching associations, lawyer associations, um, to get in, in front of them. And so, yeah, we, we just did a lot of things that probably Calendly wasn't doing because they didn't need to. And we definitely had to because we didn't kind have that market. <laughs> yeah. 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 Bootstrapping kind of tactics. Exactly. Love it. So... At this time, early in the pandemic, just give me a feature set of Calendarly. So we've talked about, uh, and for folks who don't know either of these products, both of them offered scheduling. So you could you could configure it to your calendar. And so your customers or clients could choose a time on your calendar for an appointment. So that scheduling was, was in both products. Did Calendarly also have the video conferencing embedded at this time? Uh, they started to. So at the beginning started, of the pandemic, okay. they, they they started to have um, a Zoom integration and then some other video calling integrations. That was also probably one of the big learnings for us is that we were trying to have this all-in-one solution and build it all from scratch and by ourselves. Um, 
in the end, we should have just like really again focused on scheduling only because the market was still very big for that. And we should have just partnered up with other video calling solutions, other payment solutions to take care of the rest uh, and just integrate with them instead of trying to build everything in-house because also competing against Zoom's video quality is not that easy. Um, <laughs> and so you're just like competing on three different levels and also on, from a product point of view, you're always trying to improve the product uh, and and implement new features all the time, but on three different product layers. And that's just very challenging to prioritize. Yeah. So key learning next time you would have integrated with Stripe and integrated with Zoom or whatever. Exactly. And called it a day. Yeah. And just focused but really on being the best scheduling solution and stuff. And, and just let me, if I, if I, I want to play this out in my own mind. So you would have seated the number one spot to Counterly, but would have been happy with being the number two player. Exactly. Like the Avis of the exactly. scheduling software space is a big enough pie that you would have been super happy to be the number two player in that space. Totally. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Because Got like it. this, we always had to explain to our users why we are better than Calendly, but then also why is our video calling better than Zoom? And why is our... So we always had to explain on too many layers. And as I said in the beginning, it was just the messaging was not clear enough of what we are really offering. And it also made uh, the user base or our target customer base a little smaller because we were really trying to find those users that needed all three features instead of just focusing on the big market opportunity that was just scheduling, for example, at that time. But if you if you just said we are scheduling software, wouldn't you have lost a hundred out of a hundred deals? Like, if you don't give someone a point of differentiation, wouldn't they just by default go with a market leader? Like, did you ever try just leading with? And what did you what did you discover? Um, yeah, we tried, and we have got we've received a lot of uh, users only for scheduling as well, and it did work. I think we. It's of course in hindsight you, you never know how it could have played out and um, it could have been you know better it could have been worse uh, but my feeling is that it would have just provided a clearer message and it would have helped us focus and become a better product and we could have probably eventually become a better product than Calendly because we were really fast at product development even though we had a small team we were really um, good at that and. I've, I believe we could have, if we just focused on one product instead of three, we would have been able to to find new features and, and other things that maybe Calendly wasn't offering at that time. Yeah, yeah. But the pandemic did increase your sales, as you say, dramatically. Sort of, how did you end 2022? Sorry, 2020, the first sort of nine months of the pandemic time, March. Like by the end of calendar year 2020, well, how big were you? I mean, you can use uh, revenue or number of number of users, whatever proxy you yeah. want to use for size. I mean, I think we had around. So we were still, we were never really big. We were always still a small team, and still uh, you know a, a small startup with very limited resources. Um, I believe at the time we were probably at ten thousand users, um, active users. By the time we sold, we were twenty five thousand users. So um, just to give you an idea on that 25,000 users mm-hmm. i mean a lot of people hearing that number think man you're downplaying this success because that's a lot of users <laughs> <laughs> a lot of companies that's yeah. i mean it's 
it's not calendarly, but it's not nothing either. Like it's a significant number of users. The problem was really the monetization part of it though. Um, like getting a lot of money from those users is not easy, especially because Calendly is, at that time was offering even more and more features for free. And then they were offering um, the max of $9 that people were paying. So you know, making a lot of money with that user base is, is not easy. And that is one thing that we realized um, that we either have to be better on a product side or we have to be cheaper. And the market had, had at that time um, become so competitive that we realized we needed to um, do something um, and either you know work together with a bigger player and integrate deeper with a bigger player in order to get a user base or actually sell. And that is why in the end, we decided to go for an acquisition process. Yeah. So by the end of 2021, you're at 25,000 users, but the market has driven down the price per user, counterly charging $9 a user. What were you guys charging per user-ish? Also like $10 per user. $10 per user per month. So it's a tough way to make a living because of the lower price per user. This giant gorilla has driven down the price. Um, And so you saw one of the potential avenues to go was to do some sort of partnership or get acquired outright. Is that right? Yeah. And at that time, um, a couple of our, within a few months, a couple of our competitors, smaller competitors, but still um, significant competitors in the market were uh, selling their businesses, uh, getting acquired. And so we realized that there's some kind of trend or some consolidation happening. And uh, what I did is I reached out to all of these um, founders who just recently sold the companies and I tried to understand why did you do it? Like, what are you seeing that I'm not seeing? You know, where, where's your head up? And um, it was great to, to talk to them because I was surprised how open they were and how helpful they were. And they, what did they tell you? I mean, they, they all said that it is difficult to, like, you can be number one, you can be number two, maybe, and still make a great living, maybe number three, too. But then there's this huge pool of other scheduling tools that are out there um, that I'd have to be super different, which, and nobody really knew how to be that different from Calendly or others. Um, or there will be more and more consolidation happening in the market where these all-in-one solutions would just have those features embedded. And that we that scheduling solutions are becoming less and less of a standalone product and more of a, a feature. And so that was a really interesting insight that I got from a few of the founders. And um, that made me realize that we, ha- we really have to like find a good, strong partner to become a feature maybe in a, dif- in a different company. Interesting. So the, the acquirer or the, the companies that had gone through this M&A process were saying to you, these other founders, you know, we realized that this is really now a feature within a product as opposed to a product in and of itself. Yes. So that's interesting. Did you reach so, out to Calendarly and say bias? <laughs> like, what did, you, what did you say? So I did, um, I asked a few of my founder friends, a good thing is that the founder community always has um, the people that help with, with their advice or their learnings. And um, even though those competitors of mine uh, were super helpful, they, they some of them gave me the list of the other companies they talked to and said, hey, those are interested. You should talk to them as well because they didn't sell to them. So, you know, maybe they were still interested in us. And so I decided with my team to go and do the entire process ourselves, which was um, a fun experience. 
pretty challenging. Um, but what we did is we basically had um we created a list. So first of all, we had a few conversations, the casual conversations with companies. Realized okay that there is actually a, a potential to um to partner up, uh, which was great because we were we realized okay there's there's the interest in partnering up, and so we were torn between shall we partner or shall we actually sell our business and then one of these partners said hey we aren't interested in partnering but we would be interested in buying a company like yours and that is what really then triggered it for me to go and and start an M&A process um and so we we looked all around our like competitive landscape our um at complementary products to ours and figured out who could be a potential buyer and we created different clusters uh, for different because there's always different reasons why a company would would purchase us, and so we, um, we we did that whole exercise, and then we started reaching out to each and every one of these companies via LinkedIn mainly, <laughs> and it was um, surprising how many responses we got on LinkedIn. I, I was. Wanna, I want to yeah. ask. I want to ask you about that. Two quick questions. What What did you say in your LinkedIn? message um in the beginning i was only talking about partnerships and it was a little bit more careful because i i didn't i never did that before so i wasn't sure how to even approach an m a conversation and um so i just said that we have this company and we are looking at partnering up um at the end of it or <laughs> once i i got a few more learnings i just like directly said hey we are currently in an m a process we are going to planning to sell in two months from now uh we are in final conversations but i thought you may also be interested do you want to start a conversation <laughs> like so it became way more direct uh in my approach and that really helped so i think in hindsight i should have also just like gone straight gotten straight to the point um but at that time I just be more direct. Yeah. yeah interesting mm-hmm. and and at this stage are are you starting to get a sense of what your company might be worth. You've got twenty five thousand customers, albeit paying you only a modest amount per month. Like, are, are you putting any numbers in your mind about what it might be worth? Have you seen benchmarks mm-hmm. out there? What do, What are you seeing? What are you thinking that it might right. be worth? So at that time, I, I mean, I talked to a few M and A advisors, I talked to a few founders, and the, and then I talked to investors as well. And of course, the the ranges are the they're vast. Um, discrepancies between the wages that, that people uh, have uh, communicated to me and um, some were saying okay you should have at least you know, ask for at least a million per developer or per employee others were saying that it's it should be you know 5x your revenue then others said it should be 10x your revenue so at that time it was just like you know people were saying a lot of things and i feel like in the end it just really depends on what the offers are you, that you're getting and because we were still a quite an early stage company that wasn't fully grown out yet we didn't have you know the best um metrics yet so it's it's all about also how much trust the company that the purchaser the acquirer is uh, putting into the business and putting into the future uh success of the business more so than the the current (laughs) success of the business so um i i think it also comes down a lot to how good as a founder you are able to to sell the potential to to make them believe that you and the rest of the team are in it to to win it for them in the future that you are going to make um make it be a good decision and 
and then it's all about negotiation. So how much as a founder you're willing to to also take on in, in terms of risk and, and you know, maybe have something deferred as an earnout versus uh, wanting to get everything up front, which makes it maybe more difficult also for the acquirer to really trust in your business and, and pay much more upfront. So it's all a, it was all a matter of so, so as you're making these LinkedIn messages, it sounds like, and I, I, want, I want you to clarify and, and, and validate or refute what I'm saying. It sounds like you are open to the idea of an earnout or going to work for the acquirer for a period of time. You, you had sort of, in your own mind, sort of realized that that was probably going to be necessary to monetize what you built. Is that, am I getting that correct? Yeah, and to be honest, it was also something I was excited for because I wasn't at that time ready to leave my baby yet. <laughs> it felt like we, we put so much effort into this product. We, we really still believed in, in the product itself and in the potential it has. Um, but at that time, uh, we just knew we needed to work together with somebody else on making it possible, making it successful. And so um, as a team, we also had this discussion internally, like, do we, are we all comfortable with staying on board if we get acquired or do we want them out? And um, all of us wanted to to stay in that journey together and, and be part of it. And that um, made it easier for us. We also had, I think, two companies that wanted to buy us that said up front, uh, we're just interested in the technology. We are not going to acquire or take any of the, the team members, which would have been also fine for us. Uh, but it was still... I felt also more comfortable knowing that my entire team has like a a good employer next and where they where they feel comfortable and where they can continue building that the dream that we all had. So if you put five engineers in a room for and lots of coffee in a closed room, no windows, how long would it take them to build a replica of your basic application meatbox? Like Give me a sense of like, yeah. how, like I'm trying to figure out, you know, if I'm one of these all-in-one marketing softwares and I want to add scheduling, I guess my, you know, my BATNA, best alternative to negotiate agreement is like, well, I just build it myself, right? right? Like I'll just get a bunch of engineers in a room and they'll build it. Do you have, did you have a number in terms of how much that would cost to do roughly? I mean, we did. So the thing is that when we started off, it was the technology wasn't there yet. You couldn't use any kind of open APIs, uh, open source technologies to to create what we created at that time. So that the work that we put into it um, was definitely way longer than what it would take now. Um, now, if you if you put probably five engineers into a room and you exactly know what you're going to build, or whom you're going to build it, and the feature set that you can just replicate it, it probably takes you know, six months to, to build uh, a similar tool. Uh, but I do think that um, the expertise that we built by going, like doing it the hard way and like learning the, the entire technology inside out, knowing what works, what doesn't work, knowing, um, talking to a lot of our users and, our, and understanding the, the pain points helped us build a better product and also now within Sun Blue we actually went through the exercise of replicating a lot of our product uh, and building it not from scratch but reusing some of it and building um, some additional things into it and um, just those learnings that we had as a team helped us just become way faster and build a better product now so yeah it's, it's difficult because you can always say you know you can just put in a team but then 
uh, and and pay for for the development from scratch. Um, but a lot of the the know how that the team has gained for the years um, is still very valuable for a company. Absolutely, and, and you've also got twenty five thousand customers, which is nothing yeah. to sneeze at. You've also got a brand. You've got reviews yeah. on Captera. Like, there's a lot yeah. of equity beyond just the code. But clearly, exactly. one of the avenues these acquirers could have chosen to to take is well. We're not going to buy you. We're just going to build the feature. Right. Yeah. yeah. That, and that happens that a lot. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Yeah. So take me through the, so you're reaching out to these LinkedIn folks on LinkedIn. People are pretty receptive when you're more direct. You're like, Hey, we're going through a process. You guys in how many like serious conversations, how many serious acquirers did you talk to during that time? Would you say? Um, so we reached out to over 100, I think I had with over 100 companies I had first meetings. So my November uh, that year was packed with meetings all the time. Sometimes I ended meetings because one of my team members, he scheduled everything for me and he, he like did the whole outreach in my name and, and was really good at that. Uh, but that meant that my, my, I was in my calendar. I just had back-to-back meetings and sometimes I ended meetings without even knowing what the company was doing because I was just so overwhelmed. I was so underprepared sometimes for those meetings. <laughs> so. Um, it was an interesting learning curve. I should have definitely prepared better for some of these meetings and maybe spaced it out a little. But at that time, we just realized, okay, we are now in the process. If those companies want to talk to us, we will have to talk to them right away. So I had a lot of uh, sleepless nights and a lot of work, um, but it was an interesting. How did you approach those calls? I mean, did you, um, I'm dying to know, you were quite direct in your LinkedIn. Hey, we're going through a process like like role play with me. So we're, we're on the phone. I'm like, Hey, uh, I think you're, you reached out. You guys are looking to sell. Is that right, Suzanne? Like mm-hmm. what was you, what did you say next? Like how did, what were the first two or three com- questions you asked or how did you take the conversation? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was trying to be uh, pretty honest, which I don't know if that was a smart approach or not, but I just basically told them that we build a very robust, uh, very good product. Our, our users really like the product. But we also know that the market is, that the, yeah, the market is competitive, and um, that as a standalone product, we could never be as strong as, as we could be as part of something bigger, and that's why we want to become part of something bigger. And so I kind of tried to, whenever I knew who the company was that I was talking to, I was really trying to also show them how we could integrate our product into their product where I see the high, the big potential and how much also sometimes revenue potential that could have. Um, so sometimes I, I did go the extra mile and try to to figure it all out so that my pitch was um, what was more interesting. Um, and sometimes it was just more of an open conversation. So of the hundred, how many of them got serious enough to prepare a letter of intent or some sort of formal expression of interest? Um, so in the end, we probably, uh, I mean, we had some like ongoing conversations, but sometimes they are just dragging, um, those out for the longest time. It's a meeting and every, every other week with somebody, but it's not going anywhere and you don't know why. And, you know, um, so probably we had like 20 companies that we had regular meetings with, but it wasn't going where we wanted to. And out of those 20, uh, I think we went into due diligence with roughly, uh, like, first due diligence with roughly 10. Um, wow. And okay. the thing is we had, 
probably three that were really like serious uh, and then we had another three or four that we were unfortunately not managing the timing right um so at that time we already had a few offers on the table we had a sendable's offer on the table and um we just started conversations with other companies so we we you, you're always being told that you should manage your your timing right when you're doing for example fundraising with m a it's just the same way you have to make sure that they're all in the same um stage of the of the conversation and if you suddenly have somebody who is already in the um lot of intense stage and you have a first conversation with another company that could be really interesting you don't really have the time anymore to to go back and forth and the the company that you already have an LOI from won't wait forever until you've <laughs> completed all your other conversations. They will want to pressure you into making a decision, which is also completely understandable. And that is why at some point we had to face this difficult to, uh, decision whether we want to um, take a risk and wait until we find out what the other companies are willing to offer. Or we just make a decision and go with one of the offers that we had on the table. And yeah, in the end, we went with Sun and Blue and we were super happy that we did. Uh, but at that time, it was, of course, a difficult decision whether or not you know, yeah. this was the best offer or not. Yeah, for, for my listeners, what you're referring to there and, and trying to line up timing, I think M&A professionals refer to that as sort of a structured process. And that's they do that so that everybody sort of gets to the finish line at the same time. And that's the that's the idea so that, you know, you, you can kind of create a bit of a bit of a bidding war, but yeah. give all the people all the information at the same time so they can sort of be at the same spot when you want them to be there. It's it's a really good insight and good learning for sure for our uh, for our listeners. So you had three letters of intent. Maybe walk me through the the key differences like as you absorb them what what did you how would you describe the three offers what was there what was the difference between the three um i think it was all about i mean in the structure of course they all have usually an earnout component they had a um like some kind of uh some upfront um then some conditions of how long the team would have to be committed to to the company um, in the end, for us, the decision was, of course, an, a financial decision, but at the same time, it was a, a cultural decision, and we wanted to make sure that we, as a small startup, fit into the culture of that bigger company. And, uh, for example, at Sunday Blue, we really had the feeling that even though they are a bigger company, it still gave us this like um, startup um, mentality that we really liked. They felt like everybody was young and motivated and excited about building new features and, and building um something instead of uh, being stuck in in old processes um we had other companies that were way bigger that we talked to but they also had a much um more stringent way of working and like more processes in place that we were just i i just had the feeling that our team would have not been happy uh working in in such a company and even though I mean, you, you, you dedicate one and a half to two to three years, uh, depending on, on the earnout, um, um, the earnout policies and to that company. And if you're not going to be happy at that company, that's, you know, a lot of time that you would be unhappy. So we wanted to make sure that also the company that we are going for is a company that we, we have similar, we share values with. And that was true for yeah. Sun and Blue. 
earlier in the process, when you spoke to other entrepreneurs and advisors, you got a wide range, everything from a million dollars per engineer developer, your business would be worth the five times revenue, 10 times revenue. Like what was your um, reaction to the offers? Cause those are pretty lofty numbers, mm-hmm. particularly 10 times revenue. That's a, that's a big number. When you actually got the offers of which they were all structured as part cash up front, part earn out, having heard these numbers in the marketplace, like what was your reaction? Were you, like, what words would you use to describe your reaction? I mean, I, I always try to, to negotiate more out of it because of all these, you know, voices that you've heard before. So you're always trying to, to go, of course, for that 10x. Um, in the end, um, it's, it's really like about, for me, it was really about um, judging the entire package. And the entire package is not just this one sum. It's It has so much more to it. It's also about, uh, because usually for us, it was not only a cash deal, it was also a share deal. So how much do we believe as, as founders in that other company? And do we feel like we can contribute to that success and be part of that success? And uh, do we think that, you know, these shares will be valued um, at a much higher price in the future? And so all these sorts of things, um, add to 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 the decision and yeah. so there's there's a cash component there's part of your proceeds paid in in equity in the acquiring mm-hmm. company and then there's the earnout couple questions on that how did you get comfortable with the liquidity of the shares because i've talked to some founders who uh, have said, yeah, you know, I, I didn't want to take equity because they were going to put these rules in place that I couldn't sell the equity or I'd have to wait until, I'm not sure I should, I should have known this in advance, but is Send in Blue a publicly traded company or is it private? It's private. Yeah. It, it's, so, sorry, private? It's private. Yeah. I mean, it's VC backed, but it's, it's a private company. VC backed, but, yeah. but you can't buy and sell the shares on the no. stock exchange. No. Okay. So I guess, the first question would be, how did you get comfortable with taking equity? Because in essence, as I understand it, it unless there were some provisions in, in the agreement, it's not liquid, like you can't sell it. Or or were you able to create some sort of put rights that would allow you to sell it? No, I mean, it's definitely a risk that you take. And I felt our team felt comfortable taking that risk because we've also, you know, we, we were used to owning a company that was also not liquid. Right? So as far right. as you're always kind of in that game for the future, you, you believe um, that at some point in the future, you will be able to, to liquidate that, uh, um, um, monetize uh, the success. But um, yeah, I mean, there are, some provisions in, in the contract that give us a little bit of certainty that maybe in the future we will be able to sell. Like it wasn't, you still have to, to make sure that they also get it. I guess we, we made sure that we checked it with our lawyers and, and, and tried to understand the clause to make sure that there's no weird clause in it that will forbid us to, to sell in the future or make it difficult for us to sell in the future. But of course, it's, it's always a risk that you're taking. Yeah, yeah. One of the things about earnouts that we've, you know, heard from other guests is that it's it's challenging because, you know, as you're running your company, you get to pull all the levers yourself. You have 100% control, then you become a division or product in your case inside of a bigger company 
you kind of give up a little bit of control. And if the earnout is tied to something you don't directly control, it can be hard to influence. I mean, does that do, do you uh, relate to that sort of thesis at all? And, and if so, sort of how did you think about structuring the earnout goals so that you kind of felt confident you could you could drive towards them? Yeah, um, I mean that's a very good question. We have had a lot of conversations with uh, with the acquirer about how exactly to structure our our earnout because of course there's always a risk also whether we are able to to get there or not, and it's not always dependent on us. Um, our owner was very much tied to um, our team staying on board, um, as well as like us building the technology and making it available to to sustainable users. And then there was also a revenue component, but at least we had like a few components that allowed us to to have some things completely in our hands and uh, where we had the full power over achieving those. And then other parts are a little bit more risky. So let me make sure I understand. So. Part of the earnout is tied to you releasing features that you build, which you're in total control of. Yeah, exactly. And then others is revenue, which you would influence but don't directly control. You mentioned there was a third part, and and the the audio just dropped a little bit when you said that. What was the first um, component? Oh, that our team would be staying on board. Oh, I see. So retention of the key team. Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you got retention of the key team. uh, You got release of product, and then some revenue goals, and that collectively uh, drove the earnout. Makes sense to me. What was it like being an employee at, at Send and Blue? I'm very happy. <laughs> um, I was, uh, in the beginning, it was a real relief because being a founder for, for quite some years, I was uh, under constant stress. Um, I was never able to switch off and it was a very nice feeling when I was the first time at Send and Blue going on vacation and actually not feeling the urge to check my emails constantly. Um, so that was a real big relief. Um, I think that as a founder, you always want to be very much involved in everything and you want to know what's happening at a company, even if it's a bigger company. And so I think that was maybe making it a little bit more difficult for me to to accept that I won't be able to know everything that's happening at the company, that I won't have that eagles uh, the overview anymore. Um, but I got used to it and now, um, so, I mean, there are constantly new challenges. It is still like very much, as I said in the beginning, like a startup mentality in the way we approach certain things, which I really enjoy. And I'm, I'm really, yeah, I really like the, the atmosphere at the company. Cool. Are you up for a quick lightning round of questions before I let you go? Sure. Okay. I know you went through, uh, friends and family and accelerators and incubators. And so you talked to a lot of investors and you talked to a hundred people on LinkedIn that you connected with. So I'm guessing you have a good answer to this question, which is what was the slimiest trick a potential acquirer or investor tried to play on you? Oh, uh, tried to play on me. I, mean, I think we have just like completely under, I mean, we have people that were just saying, uh, they want to just acquire us and give us like some future revenue without any upfront, without anything, and and just like gave us this uh, hope for some big, big success in the future um, that we uh, didn't really believe in, and it sounded a little bit like a scam. Uh, so. The old no money, no money down. We'll yeah. we'll we'll partner and yeah. be partners together. Yeah, great. Yeah. Uh, biggest mistake that you made personally 
in the process of selling your company? What, what you wish you could sort of do over again if you had it to do over again? I think being better prepared. I completely jumped into this whole process without knowing anything about M&A. I probably a few weeks or months into the process, a friend of mine told me to buy the book um, M&A for Dummies. <laughs> and it's actually like, it gives you like some a good, you know, good basis of, of what you should know, what are the terms that you should know. Uh, I was completely uh, clueless when I started my first conversation that I could have been better prepared. And <laughs> That's super helpful. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. Um, what was the lowest point emotionally? I've heard that you know selling a company is sort of like this emotional roller coaster for many people, and I'm sure in in your case there was sort of ebbs and flows. What was the lowest point you reached emotionally during the process of selling? That was uh, during the process of selling. Um. I don't know, in the end, it all worked out. But of course, in between, I had some really big lows where uh, right before Christmas, we weren't sure whether it's going to you know, go through or not and whether the, all the, the Christmas vacation is just going to be stressed and I won't be able to know what's happening. And so I, at that time, I was going through a month and a half of meetings nonstop, um, trying to keep on track with my M&A process. Um, my team was completely overworked. Everybody was just... Um, super stressed and I think that at that time we just all hit our bottom bottom but now um, but then luckily we got some good news and it all turned out well but, yeah. what was the highest point you reached emotionally during the process of selling um, when we signed <laughs> I, I literally started crying I was also it was like one you know I uh, one one tear of, of happiness and one of sadness because it is a weird thing to kind of sell your own baby in your own business but it was um, also the high point. Like it was definitely um, a big accomplishment for the entire team and something we've been working towards. So we're very happy. About can you that. describe the? Can you describe the moment where you saw the wire hit your bank account? Um, <laughs> it was just big relief because you don't believe it until you see it. Uh, like until where were you? Your, what were you doing? Um. I think I was at home and I was just, I just called my husband. I was like, it's here. It's all done. Yeah. Refresh, refresh, refresh. Yes. Got it. Got yeah. it. Um, is there one thing you wished you'd known about the process of selling your company that you now know today? Um. I mean, there are many learnings and if I could do it all, over again, I would do it probably completely different, um, but like the, the process itself. Um, but as I said, like managing timelines um, and also not wasting my time too much with acquirers that were probably not worth it. Uh, because at the beginning, you're just open to any opportunity and you talk to a lot of um, companies where immediately you feel like it's not going to go anywhere, but you still enter the conversation for a long time. Um, that was probably a waste of time. <laughs> what was what tipped you off that the conversation was going nowhere? Like, what would someone say or do in the first meeting? You're like, this is going to be a waste of my time. So sometimes you, after the first conversation, realize that either they were building something similar already, uh, and even though they were trying to keep that option open of buying you, you also realize that. 
they're probably just trying to get more information on how you're going to do things. And so that was one um, red flag that we've experienced. The other red flag was that, um, as I mentioned before, sometimes they were telling you, okay, we're going to build this great thing together and let's do this together. But, you know, you put in all of your team and all of your technology, we put in all of our team and let's build something together. And I was just not, um, at that time, I just did not believe in, in that kind of story. Um, and then I think the third point or the third red flag that we've experienced quite a lot is where we just realized immediately that it was just not really a match. Like the products with the, the, the talent group was just completely different. The product was completely different, but still somehow they really wanted to continue conversations. And I was just entertaining the conversations, even though I realized, okay, I, I wouldn't even see how our product could fit into the product even though we reached out to them, but still uh, after the first conversation, you realize that there's no real match. And it's kind of like dating, you know, immediately, but you still maybe keep on yeah, dating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did you buy yourself to commemorate the win? Um, I love food. And so uh, we went to, um, my husband and I we went to uh, an incredible French restaurant um, that fits the, the French uh, company that we sold to. Uh, so I felt like that, that was a, uh, um, yeah, nice theme, and uh, we just like had a big night out. Um, What's the name of the restaurant? Uh, it's Cuckoo, the Cuckoo in in New York. Cuckoo in New York. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll put it on my list. Yes, I'm not yeah. familiar with. Yeah. Um, super happy for your win, and and I'm glad that Sun and Blue is going well. Is there um, uh, a place that people could reach out to you if they wanted to say hi on social media? Where where would you send them? Yeah, they can definitely uh, reach out to my LinkedIn, uh, Suzanne Klepsch. Um, also, Stand and Blue is always looking for uh, new companies. They've acquired quite a bunch of companies in the past. So if you ever want to chat, if anybody ever wants to chat about that, I'm happy to, to have a talk. Awesome. And we'll put Suzanne's uh, contact information, LinkedIn profile, and Send and Blue all at show notes at builttocell.com. Suzanne, thanks for doing this. Pleasure. And there you have it for today's interview between John and Suzanne. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, be sure to head over to the show notes page, which can be found at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the show, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate. There you have the opportunity to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the podcast with John. Also, a quick reminder, if you want to watch this full interview, you can do so over at our YouTube channel, which is at Built to Sell Radio. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio and video engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. And I'll talk to you again next week.